This message is brought to you by the Tabernacle Baptist Church in Hickory, North Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about our ministries, we encourage you to visit us online at tabernaclehickory.org. That's tabernaclehickory.org. You can find our sermons on a number of platforms, including Apple iTunes, YouTube, and Sermon Audio. We trust that God will use this message to speak to your heart. I would invite your attention this morning to the gospel according to Mark in the 12th chapter. Mark chapter number 12, we'll begin reading in just a moment in verses 1 through 12. And as I have mentioned to the earlier uh, folks who were here this morning, uh, we have stepped aside from uh, our study of the gospel according to Mark as we entered into well, the Christmas season and then into the new year as we examined some truths that we felt were important uh, for our church, getting back to the basics. That seems like it was many years ago, not many months ago. And uh, then, of course, we went into the uh, coronavirus situation while we were then in the study of Jude, then coming back uh, to the study of Jude, and then dealing with some topics that uh, were definitely pertinent to our situation and our circumstances. Having said all that, I'm happy to return to the gospel according to Mark today and uh, to go through the remainder of this book, and I think it'll be very profitable for us. And the Bible tells us that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable, and we need the Word of God. And we live in an era where people want their felt needs addressed. Uh, And uh, imagine a pastor trying to chase Uh, the needs of a congregation of people and address all those needs. Uh, That's a never-ending circle. I'm grateful that I've been called not to do that, but to preach the whole counsel of God in God's Word. And the Word of God is what will make us perfect and truly furnish us unto all good works. So we need to be familiar with the Word of God and allow God through His Word to speak to us. And I believe he's going to do that in the closing chapters as he has in the opening chapters of our study. And uh, I think you'll find Mark chapter 13 extremely pertinent as it it, uh, relates to the end times and prophetical themes. But before we get to Mark chapter 13, we have Mark chapter 12 before us. And as we come to Mark chapter number 12, we understand that the Lord Jesus Christ is in the closing days of his earthly life. will just be a few days before he goes uh, to the cross to give his life for us. There are three events that are recorded in the week, uh, the Passion Week, as it is called, uh, of the Lord Jesus that have already been dealt with in this gospel. First was his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and uh, how the people lined the streets and they laid out the branches before him and they cried out, Hosanna to the highest. The second was the cursing of the fig tree, which was a symbol of the unfruitfulness of Israel as a nation. Uh, They had not been obedient to the Lord. And then the third is uh, the cleansing of the temple when the Lord Jesus drove out the money changers and said, my house is the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. After, of course, the popularity 
uh, that he experienced. The, the Pharisees were extremely jealous. Now, remember who the Pharisees are. They're the religious leaders of the day. They're the people that everybody else is looking to. They have religious power. They have political power. But they are corrupt. And they have departed from the truths of God's word. They have established a system that was loosely based on God's law, but they have added to the law so many of their own rules, so many of their own regulations, they have made the law of God, as the Lord said, to none effect. And so the Lord is dealing with them, and they are full of hatred and enmity toward him. And they ask him in the closing part of Mark chapter 11, after he cleansed the temple, by what authority do you do these things? And he lets them know that the temple is his house. It's the house of prayer. And so we come to chapter number 12, and the Lord, in the midst of dealing with their questions, speaks to the multitude that is gathered there. Now remember, this is the time of Passover. And so Jerusalem is filled with people who have come to worship the Lord. It's filled at this moment. The temple is filled. There's a, 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 a lot of activity around the temple. And the Lord is speaking in this group now to these Pharisees and religious leaders. He's speaking to the common people who have gathered to worship God. And he speaks in the form of a parable as we come to Mark 12. And I want you to look with me and read this with me as I'm reading, you're reading. Mark chapter 12 and verse 1. And he began to speak unto them by parables. A certain man planted a vineyard and set an hedge about it and digged a place for the wine fat and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. And at the season, he sent to the husbandman a servant that he might receive from the husbandman of the fruit of the vineyard. And they caught him and beat him and sent him away empty. And again, he sent unto them another servant. And at him, they cast stones and wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully handled. And again, he sent another and him they killed and many others, beating some and killing some. Having yet therefore one son, his well-beloved, he sent him also last unto them, saying, they will reverence my son. But those husbandmen said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. And they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the husbandmen and will give the vineyard unto others. And have you not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected is become the head of the corner. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hold on him, but feared the people, for they knew that he had spoken the parable against them, and they left him and went their way. Uh, let's pray together. Father, speak to us in this hour through your word, we pray. Help us, give us understanding. Open this book to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As the Lord is addressing this crowd, he rebuked the Pharisees for three things. He rebuked them, first of all, for their failure to honor the God they claimed to worship. 
He rebuked them secondly for their failure to tend to the Lord's vineyard, which was the nation of Israel. That would have all that would have been readily apparent to them that he was speaking of the nation. And here these self-proclaimed religious leaders and the priests had drifted so far from God's truth. They were not tending to the Lord's vineyard. They were promoting themselves. And then he rebuked them for their scheme to kill him. And so as we look at this passage, we're going to note three things. I'll give them to you, and then we'll look at each one of them. Number one, we will see the parable explained. The parable explained. Secondly, we will see the people enlightened. And then finally, we'll see the Pharisees exposed. Let's look first of all at the parable explained. The word parable uh, literally means to cast alongside. A parable is an allegory. It is a story uh, which is cast alongside of a truth. Someone has defined it this way. A parable is is a earthly story. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. The Lord Jesus employed the method of parables to teach the people his truth by speaking to them about things that they would have been familiar with, everyday things, customary things that they would have all been familiar with and known about. He is communicating and conveying to them his truth. And so we see this parable. It's a story they would have known about. Here's a man called the Lord of the Vineyard in verse number 9, referred to by Matthew as the householder. He is the man who owns the property. The Judean hillside would have been uh, dotted with vineyards. There would have been vineyards there, readily apparent. People would have seen them. Uh, They would have grown on the hillside because uh, that was a good place for a vineyard to be planted. You're not going to plant a garden on a hillside, but you can plant a vineyard. Uh, those who would plant the vineyard would, would uh, level off places, terraces along the side of the hill, and uh, they would fence it, and they would make their, their vineyard. And so they would have been very familiar with this. And the, and, and the story goes that this man, this householder, a certain man, verse 1, planted a vineyard. And he set a hedge about it and digged a place for the wine fat and built a tower and led it out to the husbandman and went into a far country. So here's the householder. He owns the land. He plants the vineyard. He does the work. He gets the stones out and he plants the vineyard. He builds the fence, the hedge about it. He makes a a wine fat, a place where a wine press could produce the juice of the grape. And then he leases it out to tenant farmers who were going to take care of it. They were going to work on behalf of the owner of the land, but they themselves would enjoy part of the reward of the fruit or the harvest. It was a great arrangement for them. They did not have the risk. They did not have the investment. They just had to do the work to tend to the garden, and they got to enjoy the fruit of the garden. But they were responsible to give to the householder, the owner, the fruit that he deserved. The Bible tells us in verse 2, and at the season he sent to the husbandman a servant that he might receive from the husbandman of the fruit of the vineyard. So we find here that the householder was a patient man, and he waited patiently for the fruit. 
it would take four to five years for a vineyard to begin to produce fruit. He would expect as the householder that the husbandman would send him the increase, the harvest, but he didn't receive it. Obviously, that would have aggravated a lot of us, right? It's my land. It's my property. I made the investment. I'm allowing you to farm on it, and you're the one getting all the fruit, and I'm getting nothing. So he sends a servant to remind them that they need to send the fruit to the husbandman. And at that season, verse 2, he sent to the husbandman a servant that he might receive from the husbandman of the fruit of the vineyard. But the servant received an unexpected greeting. Verse 3, and they, that's the husbandmen, caught him and beat him and sent him away empty. Who do you think you are? We're not going to listen to you. And they beat him. Verse 4, notice this. Here we see the patience and the grace of the husbandmen. Verse 4, and again, note that word again. Aren't you glad that God doesn't give up on us? But again and again and again, in mercy and grace, in patience and forbearance, he deals with us. And again, he sent unto them another servant, and at him they cast stones and wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully handled. Notice verse 5. And again, he sent another, and him they killed, and many others. Again and again and again, he continues to send servants to collect the harvest. The Bible says beating some and killing some. Verse 6, having yet therefore one son, his well-beloved, he sent him also last unto them, saying, they will reverence my son. But those husbandmen said among themselves, this is the heir. Come and let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. And they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. What a story. Now, this is something that the people would have identified with. Go back with me into the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, would you please? Isaiah chapter number 5. The Lord is using a very familiar uh, passage. He's using a, a very familiar text and truth that they would have readily known. Isaiah chapter 5 and verse number 1, Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved, touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. You'll notice a similarity in the language of Isaiah and also in the Song of Solomon. And when Brother Paulie was with us uh, for our meeting in May, he preached an entire a series of messages from the Song of Solomon that we're the garden of God. We have a relationship with God, and we're to bear fruit. We're to commune with him. We're to enjoy that fellowship. We have a, a similar picture here in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 2. And he fenced it. Why would you fence the vineyard? Well, that's to keep the animals out, to keep, to keep the scavengers out. He fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a winepress therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapes. He did everything you're supposed to do. He expected the harvest and rightfully so, but he didn't receive it. 
It did not bring forth grapes. It brought forth wild grapes. Verse 3, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. And I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah, his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry. Now, I want you to go with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Would you please? 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Because here we find the words of the prophet in their fulfillment. As we come to 2 Chronicles chapter 36 in verse number 11, we find that a new king is ruling in Judah. His name is Zedekiah. The Bible said he was one and 20 years old when he began to reign and reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord his God and humbled not himself before Jeremiah the prophet, speaking from the mouth of the Lord. Here's the servant. He's gone to the vineyard. He's gone to the husbandman. He's given the message of God, and Zedekiah would not regard the word of, of Jeremiah. If you know anything about Jeremiah, he is the weeping prophet. He spent many, many years imprisoned. He was persecuted because of his uh, ministry. And here we find this king, Zedekiah, who was appointed by Nebuchadnezzar. He was a puppet, if you would. He, he was to help Nebuchadnezzar keep things in order in Jerusalem. The judgment of God had already began to fall on Jerusalem. And Zedekiah, still facing that judgment, will not turn to the Lord. And God said, my patience has run out. It's time for judgment. Notice in verse 14, Actually, look at verse 15. Here we see a summary of events, a summation, if you would, of what had happened and what had befallen the people of Judah. Remember, if you, if you study 1 Kings, 2 Kings, you're going to find that the kings of Judah, you would have a king who would turn to God, and then you would have kings who would turn away from God. The people would fall into idolatry and all sorts of immorality and wickedness. And then eventually maybe a king would turn his heart back to the Lord and lead the people back to God, but then they would fall away again. And so you have a summary here in verse 15 of, of what happened during that time. Notice it, please. 2 Chronicles 36, 15. And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up betimes and sending because he had compassion on his people. Why did God send the servants? Because he had compassion on them. They'd sinned despite his goodness. They'd turned from him. Judgment was coming, but God, full of compassion, sent his servants 
to warn them and draw them back to him. Verse 16, notice how they received them. But they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, till there was no remedy. I would never want to be in that place, would you? Until there was no remedy. I wonder if we're not painfully close if we've not already crossed the threshold in America when there's no remedy. You would think with a pandemic, the collapse of an an economic system nearly, leaders in government who definitely want a collapse of an economic system and have stated such in the media this week duly elected members of Congress who would like to see an overthrow of all that we've known in our nation, anarchy and chaos in our streets, lawlessness in our land, would you not think that the houses of God would be filled with people who were burdened shedding tears on the altar, crying out to God, offering repentance, asking God for mercy. Would you not think in such an hour as this that would happen? But it's not. When I came to church this morning, they were out walking the streets with their dogs and jogging through the neighborhood. Maybe they'll go to church later. Or maybe they didn't. It just seems like it's totally lost on the people what's happening in our world. And the Lord said to these Pharisees and these people, judgment is coming to the vineyard. The parable explained. But then we see the people enlightened. Look at it in verse number 9. What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? Now imagine you're listening to this parable. Here's a man, owns this property, invests and works and labors to provide a vineyard, allows the husbandman to come in and work, gives them a job, and tells them, you tend to it, and you receive some of the fruit, and I receive some of the fruit. It's a pretty good situation. Is it really a kind man to do such a thing? If you have a job, thank God for it. Thank God that somebody's invested and worked to provide a place where you can have a job and support your family in the work of God. Thank God for a job. But these people weren't appreciative. They wanted it all for themselves. Sounds like modern-day America, does it not? They wanted it all for themselves. And the people are listening to how this group of husbandmen dealt unjustly with the householder and they, they, they're, they're, they can't believe the story. And then when they get to the point where he says he's going to send his only son, they're, they're mortified. They said, oh, no, he can't send the son. And surely what they feared came to pass. The son was killed. And so the Lord asked the question, 
What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come, verse 9, and destroy the husbandman and will give the vineyard unto others. Now, in Matthew chapter 21 and verse 41, we have the same uh, account here. We have the same record. Matthew is telling us from his perspective, as the Holy Spirit led him and inspired him, Matthew is telling us this parable and the interaction of the people. And Matthew gives us a detail that Mark doesn't give. Matthew says that when the Lord asked the question in verse 41, they, that is the people, say unto him. This is the response of the hearers of the parable. He will miserably destroy those wicked men. Judgment will come against those husbandmen. That is what the people are calling for. Verse, or the secondly in verse 41, he will miserably destroy those wicked men and he will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. Now here's what the husbandmen wanted to do. They wanted to overthrow the householder. They wanted to steal the vineyard for themselves and it looked like they had succeeded because they were going to kill the heir. And so the Lord said, what shall the husband or the householder do? And the people said, he'll destroy those wicked men, and he will. And he will let out the vineyard unto others. They answered the question perfectly. Here's what the Lord has done. He has removed those men, those husbandmen, those Pharisees, those priests of Israel. He has removed them, and he has given now the responsibility of his vineyard to a new group of husbandmen called the apostles, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are his vineyard. Now, let me, let me say this. God is not replacing Israel. God still has a plan for Israel. Israel and the church are distinct, and God's plans and purposes for both will be accomplished. But God has planted a vine in the midst of a dry, dusty, sick, sinful, sin-cursed world. He's planted a glorious vine that is going to grow and flourish and produce fruit and glorify him. And his purposes will not be defeated by any group of husbandmen. God will continue to work to promote that vine. And that's being promoted today through the local New Testament church. That's you and I, friends. And Peter tells us this. He tells us this in, in, in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 6. Wherefore I... Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone. Now he's referring to the prophecy in Isaiah 28, 16, which is exactly the prophecy that the Lord Jesus is referring to in Mark 12. The prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah 28, 16. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. We live in a world of confusion. We live in a world, you know, that tells us one day you do this, the next day you do that. There are so many mixed messages and mixed signals, it's hard to really know how to go about your life, isn't it? Do I wear a mask? Do I not wear a mask? Do I distance? Do I do this? Do I do that? The CDC says this. The health department says this. 
This person says this. The media says that. Does hydrochloroquine help you or does it not? Well, it depends on who's saying it helps, right? We see all this, right? A confounded world, a confused world. It's lawful for one group to spray graffiti all over the buildings. It's unlawful for another. It's a confounded time. But he that believeth on him, that's Jesus, shall not be confounded. The world may be seemingly losing its mind, as Paul said, reprobate, but we who know God are not because we have his truth. He is our cornerstone. Unto you, verse 7, therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. The message of the gospel is an offensive message. It's a stone of stumbling that the Son of God would come and die for us. Just this week, some national commentator made a statement that Jesus did not claim to be perfect. Thereby, he revealed, of course, his ignorance concerning the message of the gospel. Many people were disturbed by that, and there was an outcry about it, and, and, and I understand that. But here's the fact of the matter. Did we expect that man to know the truth? Did we expect him to give us a theological lesson? You see, the gospel is offensive to this world. Our nation has turned its back on God and on the truths of God's word. But those who believe, Peter says in verse 9, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, at this time, one vineyard has been set aside. Another vineyard is flourishing. That is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's us. We're not a nationality. We're not a people of one nation and one uh, ethnic background we are a people uh, of of all nations and all ethnic backgrounds we were a people in verse 10 who in time past were not a people but are now a people what has made us a people what is the bond that has brought us together it is the fact that we have received the lord jesus as our savior and to as many as believed on him them gave he the power to become the sons of God. We're the family of God. We're the church of God. The vineyard is going forward. The husbandmen in their evil intentions and purposes will not steal away the vineyard from the Lord. The Lord says, no, I'm taking away from them and I'm giving it to another group, the New Testament church. And then the Lord says here, I am that cornerstone, rejected of the builders, but has now become the head of the corner. Verse 11, this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. In, in Matthew chapter 21 and verse number 43, the Lord says, in, actually in verse 44, and whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Now the Lord is the cornerstone, 
And he says, if you fall on the cornerstone, you will be broken. But if it falls on you, you will be ground to powder. What is the picture here? The picture is that we fall on Christ, that we recognize who he is, that we reverence, as the householder said, his son. That we acknowledge our sin and our rebellion against God, that we acknowledge that we're destined for hell, that we confess Jesus is the son of God, and we believe upon him. We fall on him. And that which is broken is restored. Or if you don't fall on him, he falls on you. And on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. When that stone falls on you in judgment, everything you love and know will be gone. And when life is all ended for you, it's an eternity without God in an awful place called hell. Now, that's not a popular theme today, but it is the truth. And the Lord in his love and in his mercy is extending this offer of grace to you to fall on him, to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus. You see, the cornerstone is important because it, it holds and supports the, all of the structure. If you want your life to be held together, you're going to have to rest on him. Not only does it hold the structure together but, and provide the support for holding it together, but the, the cornerstone determines the lines of the building. Everything is fashioned off of that cornerstone. And when you're not connected to him, do you know what will happen to your life? It'll get out of line. Your life, your family, your church can get out of line. Your thinking, your behavior, and a society with no guide, with no standard, with no level or plumb line gets out of line very fast. So he is either the cornerstone or he's the crushing stone. And then we see lastly, the people not only are enlightened but the Pharisees are exposed. The people understand that God's purposes are not going to be frustrated by these Pharisees and religious leaders who have turned their back on God, but that the Lord is going to take that vineyard and give it to some other husbandman. And it won't be long before Peter and John are preaching in the streets of Jerusalem and thousands are coming to the Lord Jesus by faith. It won't be long until that happens. And they'll hearken back. To what he said in Mark 12. But the last thing we see here is that the Pharisees are exposed. You see, the uncomfortable thing about God and God's word is it confronts us. The Bible speaks of the, 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 the sword, the word of God. It's like a sharp two-edged sword, and it pierces even to the dividing asunder of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. What does that mean? That means God's word is like a sword that penetrates our hearts and, and peels back the layers and reveals to us our motives and our sinfulness. You see, Isaiah said... 
in the year that the king died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. You see, when he got a glimpse of God, I'm talking about a prophet now, when he got a glimpse of God, he recognized something. When God revealed himself to him, he realized how utterly sinful he was. God is revealing some things here. He's exposing these Pharisees for who they are. And perhaps today, the Spirit of God is penetrating and searching your heart using the sword, the Word of God, to reveal to you your need for Him or your sinfulness against Him. The Bible says in verse 12, and they sought to lay hold on Him. Who? That's the Pharisees. They sought to lay hold on Him, but feared the people. That's the reason they didn't do it. For they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. And they left him and went their way. Jesus gave the parable to tell the Pharisees basically this, I know what you guys are up to. And they knew that he knew. And they left there not repenting because they knew who he was. They left there with a firmer resolve to put him to death. Now, I want you to look back again in verse 6. These are the words of the householder. He'd sent the servants no fruit. But look at verse 6. Having therefore one son, his well-beloved, he sent him also last unto them, saying, They will reverence my son. And so the son shows up. And what do the husbandmen do? Verse 7, those husbandmen said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. And they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. The keepers of the vineyard threw out the heir of the householder, and they killed him. Why? Because they wanted the vineyard for themselves. What is the motive of the Pharisees? What was their motive, rather? They wanted the power. They wanted the position. They wanted the notoriety. They were filled with pride. They wanted worship. What was the sin of the devil? Created to glorify God was Lucifer. But what did he say? He said, I will ascend. I will be like the most high God. Lucifer said, I'm tired of worshiping God. It's time for me to be worshiped. Pride. Oh, that's the thing that we deal with, isn't it? Pride. It's a great sin in our nation. It's a great sin in our own hearts. And here these Pharisees are guilty of it. And the Lord exposes them when the sun shows up. Now let me tell you something. Mark, in the first 11 chapters, as we've studied it together, has revealed to us powerfully and plainly that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. If you've taken nothing else from our study of the gospel of, according to Mark, I hope that you can say, there's no doubt about it. Jesus is the Son of God. 
He demonstrated that uh, in his birth, born of a virgin, fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament, meeting uh, and fulfilling uh, those prophecies, and, and also as the Messiah, the son of David, on both Mary's side and on Joseph's. His birth testifies that he's the son. His baptism testified that he was the son. Remember when John baptized him? And John said, I heard a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And he said, I saw the spirit descending upon him like a dove. I don't think any of us have heard that lately. It's not been uttered since. A voice from heaven, the spirit descending like a dove, We've not seen that, but they saw it. The Pharisees knew about it or knew someone who saw it. So his birth and his baptism, how about how he overcame Satan in the wilderness? He demonstrated his power over the devil, over disease, over death, over demons, over natural, um, over nature. He demonstrated his power through the miracles he performed. His teaching testified as he taught with authority. And the men said, never a man spake like this man. All the prophecies fulfilled in his lifetime and in his death, it was no doubt about it. All these things clearly pointed to one undeniable fact. And the undeniable fact is that Jesus is the son of God. And the son came to those wicked husbandmen and they said, I don't care who you are. We're going to put you to death. And They conspired against him. The householder said they will reverence my son, but they didn't. I got a question. Have you? Have you reverenced the son? You see, they were religious. They were religious but they didn't receive Christ. You can drive through our town and through our state and through our nation and you can find all sorts of religious people who don't know Jesus and who do not reverence the Son of God. You say, well, how do I I reverence him? Well, you receive him. How do I receive him? By faith. If you confess your sin, you see, Jesus is the Son of God. What did he come for? He came to die for sinners. All of us are sinners. And the only way we're going to receive him is to confess our sin and to call upon him. For whosoever, Romans chapter 10 and verse 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Have you called on him? I'm not asking you if your mom called on him or if your dad called on him or if your grandpa called on him. I'm asking you today, have you called on him? Have you confessed Jesus as Savior? Do you acknowledge him for who he is, the Son of God, the Savior of the world? Have you called upon him? Another thing we learn from this passage is how terribly hard the hearts of men are. They knew who he was, and they still wouldn't repent. It's hard to fathom, isn't it? But so many in our world have developed the same attitude. 
It doesn't matter what the Bible says. In fact, there are people who go to church every week who've developed a hard heart, full of anger, full of bitterness, unforgiveness. Nothing can faze them. No message, no word, nothing can be said because they've allowed hardness of their heart. And let me tell you where it will lead. It will lead to destruction. When the stone falls, they should be ground to powder. There's a hell to escape and a heaven to gain. And Jesus came to give you heaven. Will you receive him? Here's another truth that we get from this parable. The fact is, is that we, the church, are the vineyard of God. That means we belong to him. We're not here because of our own ingenuity. We're here because he loves us and he died for us and he has placed us here in this world. And what has he placed us here to do? To live high, wide, and handsome? Just to live comfortable lives, have a good job, enjoy things, go out to the restaurants on the weekend, have some hobbies and mark our days? Is that what he put us here to do? Oh, no. He put us here to glorify him. Now, he wants us to enjoy our lives. But we're here to bring forth fruit. That's what the vineyard does. It produces fruit. Jesus said in John 15, verse 8, Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. You know, I think we've gotten so used to the term backslidden Christian, we sort of think it's acceptable. It's not acceptable. I'm preaching to myself. God has placed us here to bear fruit, and he expects to receive it from our lives. And oh, how he has been patient. Oh, how he has been merciful. And time and time again, he has sent his servants to us. The kindness of a mother, the reasoning of a grandparent or a father, a, a visit from a church member, a call, a note, a message from the pulpit. How is it that God has come to us time and time and time again to call us to repentance? Maybe today you're on the edge of no remedy. Maybe this is the last message you'll ever hear, the last opportunity you will ever have. I implore you, I beg of you to come to Jesus. Come to him today. As a Christian, if you're not bearing fruit, then come. Say, Lord, get the rocks out. Get the hardness out of my life. I give it all to you. I commit myself to him that judgeth righteously. I acknowledge that nothing that's ever been done to offend me could ever even be compared to what I've done to offend you and you've forgiven me. God, give me the capacity to love and to forgive and get me on this thing. And Lord, to be a fruitful, spirit-filled Christian. If you'll fall on him and you're willing to be broken, he'll save you. He's a wonderful savior, isn't he? You say, well, how am I going to be fruitful? Well, spend some time today in Galatians 5. 
and study that and say, are these things evidenced in my life? And if they're not, then know that God's not being glorified. And let's ask the Lord to help us. Thank you for listening to this message from Tabernacle Baptist Church. We pray that God has used His Word to speak to your heart today. If you'd like to learn more about the ministries of Tabernacle Baptist Church, you can go to our website, tabernaclehickory.org. That is tabernaclehickory.org. There you'll find additional resources that we pray God will use to be a help to you. If the Lord should lead you to partner with us or make a donation online, you'll find a link provided on the website at tabernaclehickory.org. May God bless you and thank you for listening.